Well, you know, we can't help detoxing. Our, it's like our body is one of our body's primary functions. And, uh, you know, but, and uh, I can hear some viewers say, what are you talking about? Like, I, my body doesn't, you know, make coffee enemas. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anytime something comes out of your body, your body is detoxing or cleansing, right? Uh, including, you know, when you go to the bathroom, right? You know there's waste products in there. Well, in addition to waste products, there's, there's also poisons, right? This is why we, we don't go around and, you know, eat other people's uh, waste material, mm -hmm. right? Because then we would, we would simply be poisoning ourselves. This happens when you sweat, when you throw up, when you have tears, when you have snot, when you exhale, right? So anytime anything is coming out of your body, it's, it's cleansing your body. So it's nothing really novel or unique. And the reason why, for example, uh, when we have food poisoning that we throw up and have diarrhea is that is our gut getting rid of the poison that we just put in there. <laughs> Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, a podcast discussing personal and environmental health. Conversations searching for truths outside of the mainstream narrative. How much can we grow if we expand our thoughts beyond what's approved by the media and social media algorithms? Come with me and broaden our knowledge. Here's some alternate views and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. Welcome to another episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, finding organics, anything like that and you can also share posts recipes food that you're growing your appreciation of nature your bushwalk your beach cleanup anything that helps each other and the planet on today's podcast i'm really excited to bring you a conversation with dr andrew kaufman now i've been watching and listening to dr kaufman for quite a while now on the existence of viruses and in particular, I love his explanation of Koch's postulates and in relationship to the COVID uh, papers that came out where they were saying that they had uh, come to a conclusion based on these Koch's postulates. And I will share a link to his video on that. But I love his description of detoxing and how... You know, it just makes perfect sense that this is what the body is doing when it's sick. And 
we'll talk about that. We'll talk a little bit about COVID. We'll talk a little bit about the existence of viruses or the lack of their evidence on that. And we'll go into some of his simple recommendations to live a healthier life, basically removing toxins and ensuring that the body's systems that remove this, like sweating, going to the toilet, simple as that, help you to live a healthier life. So this is a continuation of our virus uh, existence podcast series, but going into a little bit more about how to detox and live a healthier life. So without further ado, here is Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's the first time I've done a recording at 6am. Uh, let's start, and apologies for my voice. I've got a bit of a bit of a croaky throat at the moment, so which is uh, interesting considering the things that we'll talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew, for people that don't know, that haven't heard of you before? Sure. Yeah, I am a kind of a, a conventional doctor who has defected uh, from the medical industrial complex, uh, so to speak. And uh, this mostly happened during uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, where I uncovered the huge fraud of virology uh, for the first time uh, in my life. And uh, communicated that to a lot of folks and it resonated because um, scientifically it's the only conclusion that you come to if you apply uh, logic and reason. So uh, before that I was um, practicing forensic psychiatry and um, was an uh, academic doctor doing research and teaching at a uh, university hospital and I've also worked in uh, the public health and biotechnology uh, sectors. So all that kind of prepared me to realize what's been going on and go beyond just the uh, confines of the pandemic. And now I really do teaching about um, the truth about health and biology, um, natural healing, um, and subjects related to, to those. I've had uh... Dr. Sam Bailey and Dr. Mark Bailey on the podcast. And uh, I, I've got to say, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, like you, although not a doctor, had never really thought about it leading up to the pandemic. And it's, I think it was very obvious. Well, it should have been obvious to most people that uh, there was a lot of weird things going on during the COVID era. Absolutely. I mean, some uh, things were uh, quite in your face, but it seems that uh, most of the uh, population out there didn't uh, seem to <laughs> realize some uh, some unique characteristics like among healthcare workers, for example. You know, we've always been told that um, when it comes to viruses like the flu, that masks are not helpful. 
and we, you know, there's no reason for us to wear them. Like they, you know, they did wear, require us to wear masks if someone had tuberculosis, uh, which, you know, is allegedly a bacterial disease. But um, then suddenly, you know, so they just without any new evidence or anything, right, completely reversed this position. And you, you saw this um, play out with Dr. Fauci even, right? Because he also, like every other, you know, doctor in the country knew that masks uh, don't really help uh, with these situations. And certainly it's not even possible for viruses because their alleged size was much, much smaller than the, you know, the pore size of uh, regular masks. So, you know, I mean, the scientists who work with these, you know, alleged particles in um, in the laboratory, they have to have a full like suit that has a self-contained um, breathing system, right? They can't have any possible communication with the air uh, that these, you know, particles are in uh, for safety purposes, right? So that all that information helps you quickly realize, you know, that something is going on here that is totally contradictory to logic, uh, reason, and evidence. And I didn't even, you know, get into the studies on masks. But all the medical professionals, you know, in the world knew this already, right? Because every student, you know, says, oh, why don't, you know, why would we wear a mask? As soon as they see someone wear a mask, oh, why don't we wear a mask for this or that? And we, we know that it doesn't work. So you had to kind of just uh, have amnesia almost to adopt these things without question. But uh, somehow most, most uh, folks just did just that. Do you wonder if that was a mechanism of control or a, a reminder that this thing was going on and you needed to be afraid? Uh, well, you know, it, you're talking about the masks specifically? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it uh, it had uh, several functions, and um, you know, one is that it's ritualistic, right? Masks are uh, almost uh, always involved in initiation rituals, for example, because they represent um, shedding the individual identity and then um, being initiated into new identity as part of the group that you're being initiated into. Uh, so even in, back to my college fraternity days, uh, this was part of the initiation uh, ritual. And so one could look at it as uh, some form of mass initiation uh, ritual to dissolve our individual identities. But there's also uh, all kinds of um, harm that comes uh, in the ter in in the context of separating men and women from each other, right? So when you cover the mouth, you limit communication, right? I mean, we've all had the experience of uh, frustrating trying to understand uh, what someone is saying uh, from underneath that, um, especially in a you know loud ambient environment. And for developing children, it's critical to be able to see the mouth uh, move in order to gain certain cues and in order to distinguish similar sounds that are, that are distinct. So 
And I believe there may be actually some follow-up data about children who had to, uh, you know, who were sent by their parents and forced to wear these masks in school for extended periods that there are actually developmental um, delays um, in, in certain cognitive and language uh, skills as a result. Also, of course, um, you know, just getting people to do something that is so um, against, obviously against their health, like we may have had the experience before of, you know, deciding to wear a mask for an actual safety purpose. Like um, when I did a lot of sanding and uh, finishing of, of wood furniture as a hobby, um, there were times when I wore an N95 mask, you know, uh, to prevent particles. I even wore a respirator um, when I used uh, some of the varnishes. Uh, like when I was working on a, a boat, that was uh, particularly noxious stuff. So I'm not, you know, foolish to not uh, use safety equipment when it's appropriate. But when I did wear those uh, masks and the respirator, like it was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and my breathing was clearly impaired. Like I couldn't go for a jog. Um, in fact, you know, some of the work that I was doing was uh, fairly physical, um, even though I was using power tools. So I did get a little bit winded, you know, when I was uh, moving some big wood pieces uh, to get them, you know, uh, ready for the next coat or that kind of thing. Um, and I couldn't wait, you know, to get the mask off as soon as I was done uh, with the procedure. So we're putting, you know, people put themselves in that position, but, you know, almost all the time, like if they were, uh, you know, working and they were wearing this at work, right? So we're talking eight, 10, 12 hours a day, depending on their job or career, and then, you know, multiple days a week. So that's quite a lot of time. And of course, we've seen, you know, what do you do if you, you have to sneeze? Uh, for example, I've seen lots of people sneeze and then just keep the mask on, like with all of that snot under there. So <laughs> it's almost making a mockery and, and it's certainly making it more difficult uh, to breathe and getting uh, less oxygen and breathing your own waste products that you breathe out. You know, most folks don't know that um, every time you exhale, like you know that you're breathing out you, you know, your carbon dioxide, which is um, a exhaust product uh, essentially from uh, combustion in your body, and it becomes uh, food for plants. But you, they don't realize that you're also getting rid of toxins, even environmental toxins in your outbreath, uh, because there's a lot of air pollution. We breathe it in, we have to also breathe it out. Otherwise, it can get in our body and, and cause damage. And some studies have even shown up to about 400 different chemicals in the outbreath of uh, various men and women. So you can imagine if we are obstructing the, the flow out and we're, our body is trying to get rid of all these um, unwanted materials, uh, they're going to be concentrated uh, right in front of your mouth and nose behind this mask and then you're going to rebreathe them back in. And uh, this is probably why um, some parents, I believe, got together in Florida and tested their kids' uh, masks after a few days in school and then uncovered all sorts of bacteria, which are, you know, claimed to cause uh, very serious diseases. And the reason why they're associated with very serious diseases is because they're the ones that, that come and help 
actually try to clean up your body when you're in those disease states. And we see the same thing that they're coming to try to, you know, clean up this uh, mess right in front of your uh, face and your airway. It can increase acidity in your blood. Is that correct? Well, of course, when you, if you are breathing, uh, are unable to get out the CO2, uh, for example, like uh, your your ex your out breath is um, uh, obstructed in this manner, uh, it, that can of course build up uh, CO two in your blood, which is the main acid. Um, there's an acid base reaction, right, where CO two becomes carbonic acid, and uh, then can be um, reacted down to the weak base of uh, bicarbonate. So depending on the balance and these factors, and we know that if we, for example, if we have an acidotic state in our blood, we can hyperventilate, or that's what our body normally does to compensate for um, the acidity in order to bring back the balance. And of course, you know, our, our blood actually is always slightly acidic is the normal range. But we're talking about you know making it more acidic than than normal. So by obstructing the outflow of the CO2, it can concentrate in the blood and bring bring about a respiratory acidosis, and then that would have to be your body can still compensate for that by using the kidney. Uh, but it's definitely less than an ideal physiologic state. Uh, it's not. It's the opposite of health. I think that whole period was could be summed up by saying it was the opposite of health. <laughs> we're also seeing now, I don't want to go on about COVID the whole time, but we're also seeing now that at times there wasn't even excess mortality. And then some of the media has even reported on things like ventilation and remdesivir contributing to uh, the death rate. Do you know much about that? Yes, yeah, absolutely. But let me just um, caution you about this excess mortality um, statistic, because this is something, you know, how do you know what level of mortality is excess? Mm. And how do you know what is not excess? Uh, right? It's, it's not a, a straightforward question. It's actually very subjective. And what happens is, is that the public health agencies, and of course, this is all predicated upon that their source data is actually correct and accurate, right? So that for every, uh, you know, death that that occurred in the geographic region, that it was accounted for and verified, right, that it was a valid uh, death. And then you also, of course, need to know the population, um, because the to determine if it's excess or not, right, it's going to be a portion of the overall population. If you don't know what the population or the denominator is, you're never going to have uh, an ability to make this determination. But the, th the thing is, it's not as simple as saying, oh, more than last year, because last year could have also been excessive, right? And so how do you determine this? And, and here's where the problem lies. So even if your starting data is accurate, there are statistical models that are used to make this determination. And this is essentially like a black box that you don't know exactly how they are writing this formula to determine what is normal 
you know, what is uh, minimal, right, which would kind of be the opposite of excess, because if we know that there's excess deaths, then there should be, you know, also uh, below the uh, expected deaths um, number and some years uh, should be like that. In order to fudge whether there are excess deaths or how many there are, you can easily change the parameters in this statistical model or this black box. And this is where the problem is. So it would be better to, you know, look at um, just the number of deaths, the raw, you know, number of deaths. Now, even then, we have a significant problem because the CDC, for example, they tell us that you have to wait a full year before. So in other words, like if, if we want the numbers that are accurate for 2020, right, that we would have to wait till 2020, of course, completes in order to have a full year's worth of data. But then we'd have to wait the entire year of 2021 in order to know accurately how many deaths there were in 2020. Now, this, to me, is a big, big problem because it, it's quite easy to know when a death occurs because there's a death certificate, right? Now, not 100% of deaths may be known about immediately, right? It's possible someone could be living alone and they die and no one, dis you know, the mailman has a package or UPS, you know, the next week and they're like, oh, it smells like death and they call the authorities and they find that the person died the week before, right? So that can happen, but not 12 months passing, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I would say within a few weeks at most um, to be, you know, 99.99% accurate. Like, why is there this delay? Because there is a clear reporting mechanism, right? Everyone who dies and, uh, you, you know, goes to a funeral home, a hospital, uh, in police custody, right? Anywhere. Um, any situation in order to get any kind of uh, engage any kind of public services or private services, right? There's a reporting mechanism that the, uh, the person who died has to have a death certificate, which states when they died. Right now, I'm not going to get into the cause of death because that's much, much more subjective, but just, you know, like one individual, are they alive or are they dead, right? If they die, we should know about it. And that, that's the only number you need to determine if there were excess deaths, just the number of deaths. So if there's this reporting system that everyone gets a death certificate that's filed to a government authority and these are all in a database, they're reported, why can't we you know, get that number in a timely manner? And why is there a question of the accuracy, right? It should be very, very easy to check for duplicates, but how could a duplicate even occur through this system? Like you know, one body is not gonna be uh, reported twice. They're not gonna have two death certificates, right? <laughs> so I am just highly suspicious that uh, about what's going on with this data and why it takes this time. And then they put it into a, a statistical model and um, you know, fudge it that I'm not really sure it's accurate. But if we use more uh, crude um, methods, uh, that is what men and women who live in nature would do is we just say, you know, okay, normally, you know, we know a couple of people die a year, right? Uh, people we expect or, uh, whatever, but there's, you know, 
no rash of deaths that generally occurs, you know, like, I mean, anyone can have that experience where suddenly a number of folks they know pass within a short time, right? But overall, we don't have that collective experience. Um, if, we, if we all had it, we would be talking about it, uh, generally speaking, or we'd be able to ask each other. Now, um, there was nothing like that, uh, you know, until the jabs came out. But prior to that, I mean, you, you know, I think Australia, right, that they went into lockdown when they had something like, you know, four or five deaths that they attributed to this in their entire nation. <laughs> right. That's obviously not rational to uh, to take measures because of uh, essentially nothing going on. But I know that I have heard about a lot more deaths and, and especially in younger people. And I think we all have uh, since these injections have come out. And I'm talking about like in my personal life, I'm not talking about in the media, you know, noticing all the athletes with sudden death or anything like that. I mean, in my personal life, like suddenly uh, young people died of a sudden aggressive uh, cancer, things like that, uh, all kinds of friend, friends of, fr of friends or relatives of friends, all kinds of stories someone was healthy, young, and then suddenly passing. So that, that's a signal, right? Now, I, I still can't know for sure uh, if that represents excess or significant excess, but it definitely raises eyebrows, and uh, then you can you know, try to go look at the numbers and, and see what it actually shows. But um, interestingly, even though the whole public health uh, authorities and agencies, their main raison d'etre is to tabulate these kinds of vital statistics. They have really uh, no skin in the game, right? Their government uh, agencies are spending other people's money. Uh, what? Why do they feel they need to be so accurate, right? And let's compare this to um, another um, sector that monitors uh, these vital statistics, but not to the entire population, uh, but to their policyholders. And I'm talking about the insurance industry. So the insurance industry, they uh, keep extremely good track of their policyholders' um, life and death uh, because of death uh, benefits, right? So the, these, uh, their policyholders of life insurance policies. And any insurance company, right, if they did not know, like if they thought there were more deaths among their policyholders, uh, but, but some of them were actually alive, for example, well, they would pay out, uh, you know, extra money and they would go bankrupt. And uh, as any of us who have dealt with insurance companies know, they never would do that, <laughs> right? So... It, we can rely on accuracy of the insurance numbers. Now, we can't extrapolate very clearly to the entire population, but actually we can make, we can understand a few things. So if we look at who makes up uh, policyholders of life insurance, um, we're not talking about poor people, right? We're, we're mostly talking about uh, employees of bigger companies that offer these policies as a benefit. There aren't that many folks in the middle class who just go out and uh, buy life insurance on their own, um, although there are some. So these are, but these are mostly, you know, well-educated or professional people. They have, they're employed. 
uh, right? They have jobs. So we could say that uh, these are some of the healthiest people in the population. And we know that they, that the, that sector of the population has very, uh, you know, low uh, mortality risk year over year. And that's why the insurance industry has no problem writing these big policies uh, for these corporations. Um, but if we look at the bigger population, we see, you know, that um, there are many other people who are less gainfully employed, unemployed, partially employed, disabled. And those individuals are more vulnerable to something that would be dangerous or uh, to their health. So if if we look at the insurance industry death benefit claims, we see that there was, in fact, a significant excess mortality, but it occurred in um, after the injections were uh, distributed. And we know, of course, um, the policyholders being employees, we know that employers of these big companies uh, required or at least uh, coerced and persuaded their employees to get these injections. So, and we know there's a very high compliance rate because uh, some actually lost lost their jobs as a result of refusing, uh, although they probably had a higher uh, survival. So if we say that the general population had an even bigger excess mortality as a result of this, it would be quite astounding uh, because we're talking about, uh, you know, two standard deviations above the mean or the kind of event, uh, they call that a two sigma event. It's the kind of event that generally would uh, be during a major, you know, worldwide disaster, uh, a hundred year flood, so to speak. In the UK, in one week, it would be like having a 9-11 every week. The, the, the media doesn't really report on it. Do you have a, uh, a theory on how this might be happening because of the, the injection? Do you mean like the mechanism of toxicity? Yes. Well, that would be, um, you know, mostly pure speculation, because if we look at, you know, and, and obviously we don't have direct evidence because we we're not uh, really told all the ingredients that uh, were given in these formulations to folks and. And uh, we're not given, you know, toxicology data that's sufficient. Obviously, they tried to bury a lot of the uh, clinical um, information, but we, but some people have uh, really done some amazing uh, independent work, like looking uh, at lot numbers and then looking at mortality by lot number or adverse uh, reaction by lot number, you know, from uh, the public database, um, the CDC uh, reporting the VARA system. For example, you can download, you know, all of that data and analyze it yourself. And from that kind of data, what was found is that different batches of, you know, the same brand, uh, but different batches. So, you know, one made in September, the next one made in October. They had very, very different outcomes in terms of, of toxicity and adverse events. And there seemed to be uh, a certain portion of the batches or lots which had very high toxicity. Um, and then there were many that had very, you know, very, very low or no toxicity. Like they might have just been a placebo, for example, if this represents some kind of, you know, 
mass population uh, experiment. And it was further than that because it wasn't, it wasn't just like, um, you know, batch one is, uh, has 10% of the, this ingredient and batch two has 12% and batch three has 14%, like uh, where they vary the doses. Because the nature of the adverse events uh, by lot were distinct. Like, for example, if one lot had more neurological uh, adverse events and another might have had more cardiovascular. So this uh, strongly suggests that they actually varied the specific ingredients, not just the amounts. So given that there is all of this variation and non-disclosure, uh, all we can really do is kind of look at the different, you know, toxidromes or the, the, the ways that people have experienced substantial toxicity to these products. And then we can say, okay, well, it has some substance that is, you know, so like, uh, for example, if we take the people who have neurotoxic reactions, like uh, Guillain-Barre or Bell's palsy or some kind of seizure um, uh, problem, right? Or the um, uh, numbness and tingling in the, in the f uh, fingers and toes, like I believe Eric Clapton had, it with, uh, they call it peripheral neuropathy. So, you know, if, if the individual had one of those problems, then, you know, it's fairly safe to say that some constituent uh, was a neurotoxin of some sort. And then you could say, okay, what, what are the known neurotoxins and how do, um, you know, people help their body detox from those? And then you could uh, try those procedures and um, have a very good chance that your body would be successful at um, improving or even completely reversing the problem. So during COVID was the first time as well that you had ever considered toxicity and vaccines in general? Well, uh, actually about um, three years before it started, um, I was introduced to a book called uh, A Mind of Your Own by Kelly Brogan. And um, that was the first time I had really heard anything about detoxification. Like I had uh, been very interested in um, the effects of nutrition on health, um, but I was still, you know, I was a mainstream doctor. And, um, but it was a, you know, a friend who suggested that I look at this book. And, and uh, as a mainstream doctor, I was becoming very critical of mainstream medicine because I was studying uh, a lot of the clinical research in my field and saw that it was uh, not really meaningful and that it seemed like they were uh, misinterpreting a lot of these um, studies or doing them in such a way to bias the results uh, for um, the purposes of uh, promoting particular drugs. And when I, you know, had the experience of using these drugs with my patients, I uh, did not see any good results. And, um, you know, ultimately I started to see some real harm. So when, um, when I read Kelly's book, you know, the first half of it kind of goes through the same body of research literature that I had been uh, looking at myself. 
And we, she came to the exact same conclusions as I did. So it was kind of a, a no-brainer to follow the second half of the book, which is look at um, you know, things like nutrition and detoxification. Um, and I thought at the time, some of the ideas were a little wacky, like, uh, you know, of course, uh, everybody thinks this is wacky at first, but coffee enemas. Now it's like a staple of my <laughs> repertoire. Um, and it's the first time I really heard, uh, you know, about detoxification, but um, I went on to, because I tried that and I tried it with a, a former colleague who was having significant anxiety problems. And she went into remission for the first time and was able to keep it there as long as she avoided gluten. And I was just blown away because I was completely skeptical of the whole gluten sensitivity thing. And um, it just was not consistent with anything I was told by anyone in medical education. And, but I was really inspired, so I kept studying and I studied many, many other um, professionals uh, with, with things to teach. And I really, you know, it was all kind of a lot of anecdotal, like uh, I do this and here's the results. And then I would hear, you know, the, the patients or clients talk about their results um, on a chat or that kind of thing. Like uh, with Jennifer Daniels, Dr. Jennifer Daniels, uh, podcast uh, a lot of times had material like that um so you know but it was it, it wasn't organized like into a textbook or a theory or anything like that and i know you know for the way that these practitioners talked about it maybe they had their own you know formulations or whatever but i wasn't exposed to it in that way and it then it suddenly dawned on me after you know about three years i'm like because I was just trying to search for any methods, procedures, or materials that people have used that have had amazing healing results from serious life-threatening disease. Like I, I wasn't interested in things that give you more energy, uh, right? I wanted like, it, you know, somebody uh, had end-stage pancreatic cancer and then they were, you know, 100% uh, healthy five years later, right? I wanted stories like that and I found lots of things with those stories and it dawned on me after three years that every single one I heard about that was successful pretty much was detox of, of one sort or the other. And so of course that realization really uh, helped me um, in applying this to consultation work and to teaching. And in fact, now I have uh, you know, an entire course uh, devoted to teaching you about detoxification. I think when I try to explain terrain theory to people, they understand makes perfect sense. And I know it made perfect sense to me. But so you're also saying that apart from avoiding toxins in the first place and trying to live a healthy life, that should also include detoxing because I guess some things are unavoidable. Well, you know, we can't help detoxing. Our, it's like our body is one of our body's primary functions. And, uh, you know, but, and uh, I can hear some viewers say, what are you talking about? Like, I, my body doesn't, you know, make coffee enemas. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anytime something comes out of your body, your body is detoxing or cleansing, right? 
including, you know, when you go to the bathroom, right? You know there's waste products in there. Well, in addition to waste products, there's, there's also poisons, right? This is why we, we don't go around and, you know, eat other people's uh, waste material, hmm. right? Because then we would, we would simply be poisoning ourselves. This happens when you sweat, when you throw up, when you have tears, when you have snot, when you exhale, right? So anytime anything is coming out of your body, it's, it's cleansing your body. So it's nothing really novel or unique. And the reason why, for example, uh, when we have food poisoning that we throw up and have diarrhea is that is our gut getting rid of the poison that we just put in there. <laughs> um, and it's quite simple because if it gets out, then it can't cause any further harm. And so our body does this whether we support it or not. But the problem lies is that we don't realize this is what our body's trying to do. And so we try to fight it or suppress it. And, and the mainstream medicine tells us that that's that's a good thing for some reason. I mean, uh, you know, that God forbid you should be unpleasant for five minutes. Uh, you know, you have to turn that system off, uh, you know, at any price and maintain your uh, comfort and dignity. But the approach that, you know, you might call a detox uh, treatment is it's it's the opposite. It's 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 about supporting your body doing that detox um, so that if you're already experiencing what you might, you know, call an illness or very, very poor health, that the detox process will reverse that. Um, and if you're already in pretty good health, then um, supporting your body's detox will keep you that way. It's, it's people quite often, they, they, they don't want to hear that there's no such thing as a virus, for example. The part where it gets difficult for people to understand is when, because they go to that time when everyone in their family got the flu at the same time. And I've heard you describe a theory for why that might be happening. Well, you know, before I go there, um, for the folks who find it hard to, um, you know, tackle this issue, just ask yourself, have at a time in your life where your family all got the flu and you and you believe that it was a virus did did you actually see the virus hmm. did you did you have any direct evidence that it was there how would you even find that out um, now if they did some kind of flu test then you would have to ask the question well how did they develop that test they must have like taken flu viruses out of people, looked at them, you know, to verify that they were there and then ran this test and saw if the test matched, right? But you wouldn't find that actually. So if you ask yourself, you know, a more basic question, just why do I think that this flu is caused by a virus? Uh, the answer would be because others told you that, right? But you never actually looked into it yourself and and anytime that is the the case right about anything then if the others who told you about it if they themselves didn't know or they were trying to deceive you or they were just 
um, misinterpreting things, you would never know. So when something is important, like your health, if it's something that's going to affect you, I think um, it's your obligation to just take it a step further and ask the questions. How do we know that? Is this just something that everyone says? Like, you know, because we're all familiar with things like that. Uh, you know, are you going to uh, get a stomach ache if you go swimming after you eat, right? Uh, lots of people are told that and believe that to be the case, but is is it actually the case, right? Did Did we actually test it? And the thing about contagion is that that's also something that we're all told, and we do see that people often get sick um, around the same time or at the same time, uh, when, when they're close to each other, but have we actually, you know, looked at, does that, you know, what causes that? Is it really caused by a microscopic germ that's passing between people or is there some other explanation? And they've, they've done studies to test this and it's quite easy actually to do a study. You don't even, um, need to look at anything under the microscope, at least to, to show contagion, um, to find out what the agent of contagion is, you would have to do further work, but just find out, okay, it d does an illness pass, you know, through some bodily secretion, right? Which I was just telling you, interestingly, is about something your body wants to get rid of, right? So I guess if there was a germ that caused an illness, the body would want to get rid of it, right? So that, that kind of makes sense. And turns out that so it's been well studied, like there are dozens or more um, experiments, you know, in people and in animals where they take the secretions of someone who is sick with a certain illness and put it, you know, give it to the and you have to do this by natural uh, route. So you can't like. For example, if it's like the flu or it's said to, to uh, spread by respiratory droplets or secretions, right? So you can take respiratory droplets from someone who has the flu um, and then um, a healthy subject can inhale those and see if they get the flu. But you can't take those secretions from the sick person and like inject it into their heart <laughs> directly. Mm -hmm. But they've actually done experiments where they've done things like that. So I'm not completely making that up as laughable as it sounds. But you should look at the natural route, like whatever the theory, you know, the hypothesis is. So if you say it spreads by, you know, what comes in, what's in your snot, then then put your snot into another creature. If it's like a, you know, a blister, like a vesicle, like herpes, um, well, maybe just take the fluid right out of there and rub it on the skin of someone else or rub it on their genitals, right? And then see if they get a lesion. And it turns out that, th that this has been done many times. It's been done with the flu. It's been done with herpes. It's been done with uh, gonorrhea. It's been done with the common cold and, and several other things. And in all these experiments, they never were able to produce contagion. So in other words, they were never able to make anyone sick by taking the secretions from a sick person and putting it into a healthy person. In fact, one study on, on colds, they, they took all of the snot from people who had a cold and they injected it into healthy people. I'm sorry, they squirted it 
up their nose, but under pressure, okay? Now, they had a control group. They had two groups. So they had uh, basically this, you know, cold snot in an inhaler. It's a nasal inhaler. And they gave it, they gave that to one group. And then they had just salt water in the same nasal inhaler. And they gave that to another group. Well, the group that shot salt water up their nose, actually, they had a higher rate of colds, which was extremely low, than the other group who got the cold snot from a person who was sick. So that could actually give rise to the opposite hypothesis, that the secretions of a sick person might actually protect you from getting sick. <laughs> sort of anti-contagion. So if you look at that and review that research, that contagion, right, which really is related to all of the illnesses they say are caused by germs, not just viruses, but also bacteria at a minimum. And none of the studies trying to demonstrate contagion can actually make it happen. So the only thing we can conclude for that is that contagion is not occur in nature, at least for sure, not in those illnesses like influenza or other respiratory illness, acute respiratory illnesses. So that's really the, the most important thing. So why do people get sick together? Well, most likely they were exposed to the same thing. Like if we all went to the restaurant and some of us got shrimp and that shrimp happened to be uh, too far gone to be serving, but they didn't want to throw it away because it cost money. And so everyone who got the shrimp all got sick. Right. And, and what, you know, when we see individuals getting colds at the same time in a household, we don't necessarily go on the other side of town and see other households where those members got sick. Right. So it's like, it's not just that we're spreading it among our family, right? It's that we're all responding to a common environmental factor. And with colds and flu, it's pretty much the, the weather. It's an annual cycle, right? We even call it cold and flu season. And that's for a reason, because when the temperature and the humidity go down every year on the annual cycle, around the time that the trees lose their leaves, this is when uh, we experience colds and flu. That does make a lot of sense the other things that that might be happening for example for here in australia we have daylight saving and we go instantly from uh being outside a little bit more to being inside and uh, probably being less active getting less sunlight and then if you have a cold snap that seems to be quite often you hear collectively out on the street that Everyone's got the flu. Well, now this this would be a very easy um, thing to test, uh, actually, because you could just um, look at. There are certain areas in the world, right, that don't have daylight savings time, like in the United States, uh, for example, the state of Indiana, I believe, does not participate. So you could just compare, uh, you know, rates in those locales to uh, nearby locales that do have daylight savings time and see if, if there is such an effect. It, it has been looked at with respect to temperature and humidity. And it actually um, 
correlates more tightly with humidity, a drop in humidity um, in the early uh, winter months. That, that's a correlation, right? Not a causation. Like I'm not trying to say that cold weather and uh, um, low humidity, you know, cause colds and flu, but I'm saying it's, it's the, um, the, the factor of why that explains why individuals get it at the same time, mm-hmm. because it's like the signal that, that starts off the body's program. Right. It's the, the same thing with the the leaves and the trees, right? The lowering of the temperature doesn't cause them to fall off. It's a program of the tree, right? That they're going to shed the leaves every, uh, once a year and then regrow them a little bit later that year. Right. And it, it's just that the signal to um, do it, it's kind of like if you can make an analogy to a football game. Right. It's like the the coach calls the plan. Right. It's not the word hike that causes the you know pass to be thrown and the touchdown to be made. Right. It's the uh, whoever calls the play and decides that, you know, the quarterback decides that they're going to throw that ball. Right. That that's what makes it happen. It's that decision. Right. It's not saying hike at the line of scrimmage. That's just a signal to start off the the play and so the dropping of the temperature and humidity is the signal that starts off the program uh, or the play to shed the leaves so i watched the first pandemic film the other day and it's all about uh, judy miskovitz and she's talking about that she was on the team that isolated hiv in the 80s and part of her job since then was to teach Ebola to infect humans. So why are, why are people in this movement not willing to go there as far as that there are no viruses? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting with uh, Judy Mikovits because um, she has many times, right, agreed that uh, there was no um, SARS-CoV-2 virus but she does claim to have been involved in discovering uh, these other fake viruses. And um, you can find on my platforms that I uh, actually sat down and had a a very long discussion with her. Um, And I tried to ask those questions um, to understand her reasoning, uh, but she was really unable to give uh, a fully cogent response. But I think Judy is quite unique because she actually, you know, a real scientist who did work in this field and has published, you know, in with papers about viruses. Okay, so she does, you know, have uh, quite a bit of knowledge and actually does read, read some of the papers and including the methods section. I think with most of the other, you know, obviously it's it's kind of a major shift, right? Like you'd have to, if you, when you realize that germ theory is not true, um, it causes some major shifts for you. Like you have to really rethink a lot of things, uh, based on that, especially if you're a health professional and most of the, you know, folks we're talking about right there, they're health professionals. And I, I did not continue as a licensed health professional. Once I learned these truths, um, you know, I, actually initially was fired, but from one job, 
but um, I didn't, you know, pursue any more work. I, in fact, I figured out how to uh, get out of my medical license so that I would never be accused of violating it um, later on. Um, and that was very, you know, disruptive to my life, having to, uh, you know, after all the work to become a doctor and uh, time involved to kind of just uh, give it all up that quickly, it's um, not too many people are willing to face that possibility by looking into this. And so what I find is that uh, virtually all of the other folks, um, and, and, you know, I have a lot of respect for many of these uh, folks, they're doing a lot of good work. Um, when it comes to this aspect of the issue, which I feel is actually the most important thing, because uh, they, they can use this to fool us so many, many times if you don't realize it. Um, and it is the most fundamental uh, aspect of the deception, um, is that they, they're simply unwilling to actually look at the issue seriously. They dismiss uh, what uh, others and I say outright without actually taking into consideration what we're saying. So many times they are not even willing to read a paper or even agree which paper that the virology establishment themselves puts out uh, claiming to discover a virus. And without reading it and understanding it, like how could you uh, possibly make an opinion? So it can be very frustrating, you know, talking to someone who seems like they're willing to uh, speak with you or debate you in some way, and then you find out that they don't even know what you've been saying. How could you want to debate someone without um, even knowing their position? It's, it's, it's kind of strange. The rooster in the river of rats it was good to help me understand Cox postulates. So can you briefly explain what that is? So it has nothing to do with identifying a virus. Cox postulates are the way to prove that any germ, virus, bacteria, fungus, causes a disease. And it's very simple. You just basically have to show one, that the germ is actually present in people with the disease. And of course, it not present in people without the disease. So um, it, in order to do that, you have to first prove that, it, that the germ exists, right? So, but, so that's like a prerequisite for Koch's postulates, but it's not part of it, okay? And um, for viruses, no one has gotten past that step of actually showing that uh, a virus truly exists in nature. But for bacteria, they have, of course, bacteria do exist. They are real. They're easy, easily demonstrated. They're ubiquitous um, and make up most of our body. Um, and uh, Koch's postulates have never been successfully carried out uh, for any bacteria in experiments. Now, there are articles published that claim that they've satisfied Koch's postulates, including for viruses. But if you read the articles and you know basically what Koch's postulates are, you'll see that they didn't actually do that at all. Um, and, and this is really um, egregious and, and fraudulent, uh, especially with viruses. Now, the, the postulates themselves are quite straightforward. So the first one is, as I said, the, the germ you suspect of causing the disease has to be present in people with the disease. Um, and not present in people without the disease. Secondly, you have to be able to take that germ 
out of the person with the disease, right? For further experiments, of course. And when you take it out, you know, it should be, of course, just the germ that you take out, not other stuff. And then the third thing is that when you take that germ that you think causes the disease and out of the person with the disease, now you put it in a healthy host and demonstrate that it causes not any disease, but the same disease. Okay. And there is a fourth step that you basically then take it out of that healthy host that you made sick um, and re-isolate it again to show that it kind of like the chain of, cu of custody, but I, I never uh, require that step. And uh, to be honest, no one has gotten uh, past really step number two anyway. Um, but you, in the River of Rats, I discuss um, a paper that was published that said it satisfied Koch's postulates for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which was never actually <laughs> discovered in nature. It was just, um, uh, made up essentially. And so in this study, they, at every step, it was fraudulent and anti-science or pseudoscience. So for example, the first step, right? They, they never showed the existence of this particular virus. So they couldn't say that it was present or absent in anyone with any, any illness. They never even attempted to remove it from people with an illness uh, it, by itself and get it by itself. And um, in this paper, they essentially took unpurified material that was grown um, on a foreign cell culture and took the, the, the supernatant of that and said that it was the virus, even though it, it contained um, countless unknown constituents it was completely unpure and didn't come from nature. It came from a lab experiment. And then they put that into healthy hosts and, but the hosts didn't get sick and they certainly didn't get any kind of pneumonia or what they would call COVID, right? A respiratory illness. Um, but they said that they were sick because they had bristled fur. <laughs> okay. I joke you not. And even with the bristled fur, um, I did a, a quick statistical test uh, called a, a T-test or a chi-square. I forget which, uh, what the data was like. But that's just a test of proportion to say, you know, are these two samples actually different from each other? In other words, right, like the in the control group uh, that had how many had bristled fur and in the in the group that got this uh, cell culture supernate uh, mixture, how many got bristled fur. And it showed that, that there was no difference between the groups on this test of proportion using very simple statistics. And they published that this actually satisfies Koch's postulates. So they, they failed, you know, at, at every step, it was a farce. And uh, I just kind of exposed the lies and fraud in this published literature. It was jaw-dropping when I, when I read that paper and realized what I had just read. Basically, this is what happens over and over again. There is no isolation and there is no use of Koch's postulates. 
Correct. I mean, you know, with, with viruses, they've never demonstrated them to be in nature. They can, you know, do lab cell culture experiments all day long and make all kinds of particles. But uh, that's, that's something that's created. It's not something that is found um, and experimented on from nature. And with various bacterial illnesses, I mean, for, for example, you know, and, and I kind of even um, became aware of this while practicing medicine early in my career about tuberculosis because um, tuberculosis, right, which is, uh, was in, used to be called consumption, but it, it's a more chronic uh, lung problem that uh, often results in death, um, a type of pneumonia, and it's said uh, to be caused by a bacteria, right, the uh, uh, tubercle bacillus bacteria. And going back to the original experiments, as well as what I've seen um, uh, in clinical practices, that you just can't find it in all the patients with TB. <laughs> and you also find it in the lungs of people without TB. So how is this possible? If this is the bacteria that causes TB, then it certainly must be at least present in every case of TB. So what I noticed was is that when I was reviewing um, hospital records and such for people with, with HIV who had TB, and most of these were homeless people off the street who were in the hospital with really, uh, you know, basically they were on the verge of death. And that they weren't sure, you know, that it was TB. They just strongly suspected or made a, you know, a clinical or a non-laboratory diagnosis. They would get, you know, order um, sputum cultures, right, where they get the fluid from the lungs and then they see, look for the bacteria, you know, the, the TB bacteria. And they would always, you know, get, get them three times, three sets. And I'm like, oh, why do you have to get it three times? And they're like, oh, it usually we have to repeat it because it, it keeps coming back negative. So they, so I would see all these patients that were, um, you know, thought to have TB they would do a set of three sputum cultures, they would all come back negative. They would do another set of three sputum cultures, they would come back negative. Then they would do another set, and on the third set, like one out of the three showed this bacteria. And then that, that was it, like they, then they were convinced, oh, well, since we found it this one out of nine times, um, and we already knew it was TB anyway, now we can officially call it TB. And if it never came back positive, they would still officially call it TB, right? So I thought this was quite suspicious at the time, but I didn't realize how it was exactly proof of failure of Koch's postulate number one. And in the research literature where they originally uh, tried to do Koch's postulates on TB, it's exactly the same result. I hear you speak a lot about water and fasting so are these things that obviously fasting you might need a little bit of help by someone who's trained but are these the two most important things for detoxing and living a healthier life well you know it's hard to say because um, if you want the two most important things for your health i have you'd have to say food and water um fasting is probably the most natural way to heal because every animal 
species in nature does this when they're sick or injured. Um, and you don't actually need supervision unless it's a longer uh, fast. So you can easily fast for, you know, 24 hours, three days, up to, in my opinion, one week. Um, and of course, this means drinking water and nothing else. Fasting means, you know, no, nothing with calories, nothing that's food, only water taken by mouth. And you have to, of course, have, you know, enough uh, water. But it, depending on your weight, most likely if you have, uh, you know, two liters of water um, a day for an adult, uh, you're probably, you're not, you know, you're definitely not going to get severely dehydrated. Um, and you should, of course, rest while you're fasting. It's not time to work out or do strenuous activity or repaint your house when you're trying to heal. So I really am a big proponent of fasting. But, you know, if you never fast in your life, you can still get better uh, from most things and be extremely healthy because fasting is really another way to support your body's detox. When you remove the the energy requirement for digesting food, which is, is a large burden on the body. Um, right now it's, it's got a big payoff, right? But it still um, takes quite a lot of energy. So when you, your body doesn't have to do that and you're not doing strenuous other work, then the body can devote all of its energy reserves to uh, you know, repair and regeneration, which is essentially healing. And, and that includes detoxing. So if, if you, you know, are toxic and you start fasting that within the first couple of days, you're going to have notice that your body just automatically does the cleansing, right? And many people might have uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea to some degree, um, muscle cramps, low energy, fatigue, and, um, you know, other kind of mild, uh, usually mild uh, cleansing symptoms like that. Sometimes it could be, of course, um, you know, a, a bit more uh, severe, but not as severe as other ways of uh, helping your body cleanse. Is there any recommendation? So uh, a filter? Well, you have to, you know, be concerned that your water is clean and pure because there are so many uh, things contaminating water, pharmaceuticals, heavy metals, pesticides, herbicides, um, you know, nitrogenous waste from agricultural runoff, uh, which, you know, can have toxic materials and parasites and all kinds of things in it that you don't necessarily want to, uh, to get in your body. And so you have to, you know, do something, uh, um, you know, unless you have access to like real spring water where you go and fill it up from the spring yourself, not, you know, something that says spring water on the label. Um, you know, if you have a municipal water source, uh, you've got to figure out a way to purify it. And in my opinion, the two ways would be uh, reverse osmosis and distillation. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, thank you for joining the show. Well, it's, uh, it's been very enjoyable, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, apologies for being a bit airheaded. I think that I think you uh, you understand this material pretty well, and you asked uh, you asked uh, good questions. Ah, thank you. Uh, Sam Bailey says it's uh, it's probably the most important thing because without the viruses, there's really no more control that they can have, and we we can't have another one of these 
pandemics. Well, they can, they can uh, you know, always uh, um, do other things, right, outside of this field, but we'll take this completely off the table because I guarantee, you know, that they're going to use this process, even, even if it doesn't uh, turn out to be a global um, operation, right? We already see how they're using it to prevent people from raising their own food, for example, by, you know, testing for swine or avian flu and then ordering, uh, uh, you know, backyard chickens to be uh, euthanized mm -hmm. um, and such, or, or, you know, preventing people from raising their own food because it's dangerous uh, because of the spread of viruses. So, mm -hmm. you know, we need to know it right now um, so that we can be protected from all of it. Mm, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. I will share his link to his website and uh, some of his videos in the show notes. So please be sure to scroll down. He's got an excellent website with some great information on how to live healthier. And check out his talks everywhere on various topics from uh, turpentine to the existence of viruses to what Coke's postulates are. And you can really start learning on how to live a healthier life without the medical system because, again, Dr. Andrew Kaufman is another one of these doctors who has defected from the mainstream medical system and found a better way that doesn't cost you a lot of money and they're just it's just helping your body do what it naturally does because nature doesn't make mistakes don't forget to download the fair food forager app it's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic local supporting small businesses reduced plastic packaging anything really to help support you and the planet and you can share good news stories learn from each other and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review it, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thanks again to Ash Grunwald. This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye.